Welcome to the Revenue Engine Podcast. I'm your host, Rosalind Santa Elena, and I am thrilled to bring you the most inspirational stories from revenue generators, innovators, and disruptors, revenue leaders in sales, in marketing, and of course, in operations. Together, we will unpack everything that optimizes and powers the revenue engine. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Believe in yourself is one of the pieces of advice that Gaurav Bhattacharya shares in this episode of the Revenue Engine podcast. Gaurav is an immigrant entrepreneur who discusses how, even as a CEO and two-time founder, he still sometimes experiences imposter syndrome, but also shares how he works to address it and work through it. Karov has an incredibly inspirational story from humble beginnings in New Delhi, India, selling pencils and pens on the street with his brother, to designing his first video game at the age of 12, to starting his first company at age 16. He is currently the CEO and co-founder of his second company, Involve.ai, a company focused on providing a single view of all of the metrics that matter when it comes to your customers to help retain and grow your install base. Please take a listen to this amazing story where Gaurav shares so many learnings, insights, and advice, including being product-obsessed and helping make the world customer-centric. So super excited to be here today with Gaurav Bhattachara, the co-founder and CEO of Involve.ai. Involve.ai helps to organize all customer data into a single view, providing insights to help predict customer health, reduce churn, and increase expansions. So welcome, Gaurav, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited to share your story and just learn from you. Thank you, Rosalind. I'm excited to be here. Grateful for your time today and excited to share some of my stories. That's great. Thank you. So, I mean, you have had such an amazing career already, and you're still actually pretty early in your career. I know you were featured in Forbes 30 Under 30 back in just 2019. So before we dive into the different businesses that you've been a part of, I'd love to hear more about your very early start. When we first met and we got on the phone, you shared that you actually started coding at 10 years old and you built your first video game at 12. So definitely already an innovator and builder at a very, very early age. Um, Can you share more details about this? And is this sort of what led to your first company? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So Rosalind, a little bit about me, I grew up uh, in New Delhi. I grew up in a very humble family, uh, blue collar parents. I lost my father to cancer when I was two years oh. old. Um, and my mother Sorry. worked really hard to uh, give me a good education. I had me and my brother, we started, uh, we wanted to help out. I had an older brother who was um, very enthusiastic, energetic, and always wanted to get in, get involved in work early. So one of our first jobs was to sell pens and pencils on the streets. Um, and we always looked for opportunities to expand our skill set, whatever could get get us paid the most. And at that time, my brother read an article about software engineering and that being the next big boom in the industry <laughs> and how software engineers are going to be the highest paid. And we started searching for opportunities to learn you know, how to become a software engineer. And we didn't speak good English. We weren't blessed with a great background, but we were very enthusiastic learners. 
um, I remember one such day, Microsoft had an opportunity as part of their corporate social responsibility. They would send their engineers to teach kids in the community. And me and my brother had enrolled and we got very lucky that we got picked for it. And I got an old Windows PC. I think it was a 95 <laughs> Windows PC um, used before, but I was just so passionate about it. We got the dial-up modem, we hooked it up <laughs> and, and the internet was very terrible, but we started to learn how to code. Uh, when I was 10 years old and I just fell in love with it. When I, I think C++ was the first language that we started. I started learning English at the same time too. Um, and that I, I was hooked and I, I built my first video game at 12. And then, um, and that's kind of how we, we got started. But I feel everything I've achieved so far, I'm a lot of credit to my mother who worked really hard to give us a good education and my brother's enthusiasm and initiative taking, but also just coming across that article saying that, Software engine, software is going to eat the eat the world. I think that was the article by Paul Graham that we read <laughs> that just got us very excited and hooked on this. That's awesome! What a what an incredible story! Um, you know what happened with your first video game? So you developed it, and was it something that you actually turned into sort of a business? It it didn't become a business. It was a pretty cool game. Um, you know, um, it was a, a first person shooting game. Okay, <laughs> that's that's kind of that's kind of what we we started with. Um, and then I, I made some money off of it. So we were able to uh, sell it to, uh, there used to be a game called Counter-Strike long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm that familiar. was a popular <laughs> LAN game. Yeah. Yes. So so I made a lot of improvements to it and added a lot of maps to it. That That's kind of how I started designing, designing things. And I've built a lot of games in my time. Some did well, some didn't do well, but I would always try <laughs> to find people uh, to buy it and, and extend it as part of their framework. That's that's That was the first start. Wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. Do you still dabble a little bit in gaming or design? Yeah, both. I, I'm a big, <laughs> big game. <laughs> I love gaming. I feel one of the things I'm very passionate about that games have taught me is kind of that sense of healthy collaboration and competition um, and, and sports and gaming offers that so so I, I still play a lot of video games and <laughs> and I think that's like a great stress buster for me I even play with all my teammates from time to oh. time and, and <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome so so later you went on to start a company called Involvesoft mm -hmm. and I believe Involve Involvesoft excuse me is a platform that brings employee engagement to companies right through community opportunities so can you tell us a bit more about the company and sort of how did the idea for the company come about and what were you hoping to achieve yeah uh, so moving going back to that journey Rosalind one of the first things that I did when I was in high school I met my co-founder Samia it's a very interesting story we were 15 years old I still remember we were both geeks and we loved learning. <laughs> So we were both in a coding class that had almost 70 people, 68 guys and only two girls. Um, and mm. so she was one of them. We were both late to a class and we were fighting for the front desk. So in <laughs> hindsight, it didn't make any one of us cool. Um, but we both became friends and she was she was working on this idea uh, that, that, that involved um, patient experience. Both her parents were doctors and she was really passionate about it. So that was our first company. Uh, we didn't go to college. We started it right after high school and we ran it for several years. So I had a lot of ups and downs, but were ultimately able to sell it. We started it for as a software for radiologists and then expanded it into a lot of the community hospitals. It was for individual mm -hmm. practitioners, everything involving um, helping 
doctors and hospitals and individual clinics drive better patient experience. One of the cool things we did, Roslyn, was community service. And it was part of our team building since we were a small uh, team and we were a very young team. We were in, I think, 16 when we started and 22 oh, wow. when we sold it. So a lot of our team, we couldn't, we could never attract experienced talent. Nobody wanted to work <laughs> for really young people, especially in New Delhi. So a lot of our team members were millennials and they loved going out in the community. A lot of times they they got together like that. And we would include our doctors and our hospitals and our customers in those journeys. That's what we were really passionate about. So for our second idea, Sami and I started in Wallsoft and our vision was that we're gonna build something that can use technology to scale impact. And that's kind of how we started um, an employee engagement platform that would be all centered around community engagement where you could come together different companies employees in the same company and could do just amazing work in the community together well that's great um what are some of the you know as you kind of look back at that experience you know what are some of the key sort of learnings or takeaways from from that company yeah and that's an excellent question too kind of brings to our third company um we started in wallsoft with with a big vision and our vision was to do social service and have employees feel like they work at a small startup even if they work for big companies that was a few things we were chasing and hoping for um we worked really hard at it we we had some amazing customers uh, we had almost four fifty thousand users Rosalind. Wow. one of the issues that we faced was was churn was a big issue for us so we could never find true product market fit we would have some amazing people from different companies sign up on the platform they would go and have events together but after first or the second month or third month we would almost lose 35 percent of our users and we tried everything we tried every growth hack we talked to all our users i spent time with like all our initial users i remember the first 100 users I knew everybody by name. I went to each of their houses or offices. Like we tried everything that the Airbnb founders, the Uber founders, the Apple founders tried to do in every <laughs> playbook, but we still couldn't find what is it that could keep people longer on the system. Um, so one of the things that we tried, Rosalind, was being engineers. We took a lot of our users' data. We almost had a lot of uh, insights about how people use products, what titles joined, which companies were using it in a certain way. And we take all the use cases, auto-segmented auto it using our data and try to figure out what the stickiness of the platform is. Like we would always, we had three or four notch-down metrics like events created, people you're inviting, and we would measure it tremendously. Being engineers, we took that data and took the backend systems and built rudimentary Python scripts that would just put a dashboard together of all our companies, users inside it, and just a prediction of which customers will stay with us next quarter, which ones will churn, and where's there's upsell expansion potential available here. And that was very useful for us because we, were, we would have died without it as a company. <laughs> we were losing users so fast and we were running out of revenue, but that kept us in business. And that came, became the idea for Involve.ai, where we felt that there was so much value that we were getting so when COVID hit, and as you know, customer centricity became extremely important. A lot of SaaS businesses didn't know, had growth goals, where they had hired about 100 extra people last quarter to hit Q1 goals in 2020. And as you know, a lot of new customers uh, weren't available so fast. So every customer became important. So to help our portfolio companies from our VCs, we gave the software away for free, gave it to a few SaaS CEOs saying, 
hey, could you find out which customers are about to churn and really stay and help help them stay on your platform? And that was an immediate hit. As soon as we did that, and you know, a lot of CEOs came to us and said, what are you doing with this employee engagement platform? Why aren't you building Involve.ai? This could be extremely useful. So almost like Slack, how Slack was a gaming company for five years and and built a collaboration tool. That's that's a, that's a great product, very beloved product. We were a community and employee engagement platform for several years, and we had built something internally that we decided to launch in October of last year. So that's that's kind of some of the lessons learned and of pivot and changing mindset and being adaptable in entrepreneurship. Wow, that's amazing. It's always interesting to hear sort of how um, how an idea for a business gets started, because oftentimes it's, you know, a problem that you're trying to solve. It's like you said, it's oftentimes, you know, potentially a business that you're focused in. And all of a sudden you realize that a part, a small part of your business that was almost incidental becomes like, oh, that's actually a really good, you know, product to actually go out and sell to market. Um, so customer retention, we, you talked about that a little bit um, around customer retention and customer expansion, right? So incredibly critical to revenue, right? Especially after, as we all learned last year, right? That pivot to really focusing on your install base, ensuring that your customers are, are happy um, and are able to stay with you and really realizing that value. So what are some of the things that you think organizations are really getting right when it comes to customer revenue and retention? And what are some of the things that you're seeing that they're getting wrong? Uh, some of the things, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give some examples. Uh, companies like Slack and Zoom, uh, even non-recurring businesses like Tesla, companies that have a net dollar retention of 130% and more in public markets, these companies are, are trading at 50X their revenue multiples. Tesla's at 165X. There's, a lot of examples like that, that where they've really understood the importance of taking your revenue base and being able to constantly expand them, reduce churn, increase expansion, delight your customers and have pro multiple products that you can sell to your customer base and really keep them happy. There's direct implication to companies' valuations in the public market and also in private markets, their companies, um, Gong recently raised at a 125% NDR, I believe. I could be wrong, but last I read, uh, they were around that. At a 70X valuation at 7 billion at 100 million in ARR, there's a lot of these trends that are in public markets are translating into private markets. There's also other companies where the growth rates have stalled primarily because churn is so high. There's companies um, that are software as a service companies, but also other industries where there's maybe 100% net dollar retention, but the gross churn is about 30% or 20% every year, or even 40% every year. Those companies are primarily trading in public markets only at a 3x to 4x their revenue multiples every year. So, so as an example, a company that has 140% net dollar retention might be at uh, a billion in annual revenue. They might be trading at 50 billion in the public markets, whereas a company with 70% net retention every year or 80% net retention every year at a billion in revenue is only trading at 3x or, or, or 4 billion, 3 billion or 4 billion. So the comparisons are huge. I think that's something I would say the companies that are the best in class, the top 10 percentile of fast growing, big valuations and, and companies that are creating big value, they understand 
that customer retention and understanding customer experience, really truly understanding it with data. And then I think that's kind of where revenue operations comes in, really looking at your data, understanding what are this true value for your customers, getting delivering the value quickly, and then focusing on customer retention, net retention, churn and expansion. Um, I think those companies are winning in in my opinion and the and the data that we've been seeing over the past couple of years at least. Got it. Got it. That's great. Thank you. Um, one of the core values that I saw you have is sort of be product obsessed, right? You mentioned having a product that's like Apple with the quality of Japanese products and the vision of Tesla. And you mentioned Tesla in your um, last comment as well. So how does this value feed into your product offering and sort of your differentiation? And how has that helped in building revenue and expanding your own customer base. Yeah, we are very product obsessed as founders and we wanted to translate this into our vision. Uh, one of the goals that we have, our vision is to make the world customer centric within Vault.ai. And in order to do that, we wanna provide a really good platform for leaders and employees in a company to be able to transform their organizations to becoming customer centric, understanding churn, reducing churn, increasing expansions, improving customer experience. In order for us to do that, one of the things our core team wanted to do was be able to build a great product, a great platform that can do that for them. And we wanted to make it so simple and user, and we were user obsessed, not buyer obsessed. We know that a lot of people, very few people in a company pay bills and they are focused on a few things, but we wanted that our users that use the system every day just are delighted and are equipped with being able to make their, their companies customer centric. So one of our core values is being product obsessed and we interview for this. So every, every person we hire, whether it's a sales rep, it could be a BDR, it could be a marketing development manager, it could be all the way to product engineers, to full stack engineers. We ask people for these questions to understand, are they truly product obsessed? Have they have they worked with products that they're delighted by? That they truly understand how it works and what value does it serve for your customers? And we want that quality to be represented inside our company. So that was our number one core value. And and we have a lot. And we had a lot of debates internally when we were setting this together with our team last year. Uh, we went back and forth with what should be our the biggest value that we have is it one of our the other values that we're very proud of is having that growth mindset and continuous learning being able to learn every day and we have people who have worked in the industry for 30 years and 40 years who come in trying to learn new techniques and new skills every day but we still feel that being product obsessed was something that we all wanted to be as a company and, and hopefully we can you know we scaled from six people three months ago to now we are 40 people and our goal is to get to 100 by Q1 of next year. So we're growing very fast. So hopefully we can make sure that every person we onboard and train and ramp has product obsession built in, built into them. Wow, that's amazing. That's real, that's that's amazing. I, I love the product obsessed piece, but I also love the user focus, you know, and really making it easy for the users to use the product. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your experiences. Sort of, you know, touched on a little bit early on around being an immigrant CEO and founder. You know, from India. Now, I believe you're residing in California. Um, you have just such an incredible and inspiring story. Um, what? I guess, what advice would you give to others, right, who are looking to kind of follow in your footsteps and really looking to start a business of their own? 
it's it, being an in, immigrant entrepreneur, Rosalind, it comes down to a few elements. I feel that the way that immigrants are raised, um, um, especially people from around the world, it could be different. But I feel that me, for myself, I come from a blue collar family. They didn't understand anything about businesses. Even today, my mother is more excited for me being on a podcast than <laughs> being on, you know, she's like, oh, are you going to be on TV? Can, can, I, can you send it to me? Then really being a founder and a CEO, she would rather that I have a health insurance uh, than, than be doing this. I think just from a tradition, coming from a traditional background, um, entrepreneurship is not taught. Um, some of the things that are taught are just being very gritty. I think coming from a, a different background or, or working really hard and failing at so many things kind of makes inculcates that grit in you. Um, so to answer your questions, there's there's been a lot of lessons learned, but I'm going to pick just um, two big ones that I, that I believe in, and and maybe I can share those um, with other immigrant entrepreneurs. Um, one of the story is about believing in yourself. Um, I remember this conversation uh, when I was having my first board meeting. We had just raised some money for Involvesoft, and Mark Mullen was my board member. He's the he's the founder at Bonfire Ventures in Los Angeles. Um, very sophisticated VC. He's been doing this for uh, twenty years. He's invested in several hundreds of startups that have gone on to become billion dollar companies. Um, the first board meeting we had. He found out I was I was saying using a lot of language about um, how we don't know how to do this, but we can figure it out. We can ask other people. We can get feedback. A lot of times we we say you know we're not as smart, but we're going to work hard. That's the language that I was using in in board meetings, and he caught he caught on that, and he gave me this one advice that I've been following ever since. But it was. It, it's as it comes down to as simple as believe in yourself. And I think as immigrants, we have a lot of imposter syndrome. And um, you've seen this with tons of immigrants, but it could also be women in leadership positions. It's just like some something that's not you know natural. You don't see a lot of people like you um, around you, and then you question yourself and you question whether you could do this or not. And that just one piece of advice has been so fundamentally. Uh, changed, you know, has helped change the direction of our company. Um, as an example, majority of our engineering team are primarily women. And we were just having this conversation yesterday of this, having this belief in ourselves that we can do this, we can achieve hard things, we can do this on our own. And even our ability to learn and ask for feedback and advice and learn from others is because, you know, is core to us believing in ourselves. So I think that's one thing that doesn't come naturally for immigrants, I feel, because uh, a lot of times we always feel that there's a better CEO out there, there's a better founder. Uh, do we deserve this capital? Do we deserve this hire? Do we deserve this customer? Uh, can we provide value for them? I think those are fundamental questions that should be answered by just saying, you know, I believe in myself and I'll give it my 100% to make this happen. Um, the second thing I would say that that I have noticed, and, and I'll, I'll give you another story. A uh, long time ago, when I was really young, we would always walk um, a lot of miles to my school, uh, but coming back, there would be the national flag. And it would always, some days it would be flying and and with, with the wind, it's always flowing. And on other days, there's no wind, so it's down. So so I remember one of, I used to play cricket as a, as a kid. <laughs> it's one of the famous Indian sports. Um, my coach, one day told me that, you know, in life, you should be 
uh, the wind and not the flag. And and I take that away um, as basically saying that, you know, instead of being, uh, that, that could always be translated into being more proactive, you know, being the person who's dictating the terms and saying, this is how I want my life to be. This is what I want our, you know, the company's destiny to be or my destiny to be, instead of being, you know, someone like the flag who's just being flown around with the wind and, and on the terms of the wind. Um, and that kind of made me very entrepreneurial because that, that gave me an inspiration of, you know, I feel like I should never work for anyone. I'm going to listen <laughs> to what my coach says. And his name was John. I said, whatever coach John says, I'm going to do what coach John says. So <laughs> that those are the two like core beliefs and learnings that I've carried uh, that are that hopefully are helpful for immigrant entrepreneurs. Because I feel it comes naturally for people born here um, or you know, if if you have entrepreneur parents, this is something that you're born with and you're taught from the beginning, but it doesn't come naturally for immigrant entrepreneurs. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love both of those. I, I love the flag analogy and the wind analogy. I think that's so incredibly um, powerful and the believe in yourself as well, because I do, you know, you probably see me nodding my head while you're talking because it really resonates with me as well, right? Being a woman of color, being a leader, you do look around the room and oftentimes you really are the only person that looks like you. And I think as we start to kind of move up in the ranks, as you move up in leadership, there's fewer and fewer um, people that look similar. So I love that. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about Revenue Engine, right? So as I think about the Revenue Engine, this podcast, right, I always hope that others will be able to really learn how to, you know, accelerate revenue growth and literally power the Revenue Engine. So what are the top, I guess, maybe two or three things that you think all CEOs or maybe revenue leaders should be thinking about today to really drive revenue growth? Um, I'm I'm biased here, but I would say... (laughs) everything to do with customer retention is almost a growth engine that we haven't optimized for. Um, being being a revenue leader myself and working with some of the best revenue leaders, we have optimized for every aspect of call coaching, understanding how the segment should be for a number of SDRs and BDRs to account executives, in, you know, internal AEs, inside AEs, outside AEs, quota per rep, there's everything spiffs and now there's a lot of revenue <laughs> management on how people should be compensated. I think every aspect has been looked at. Um, what hasn't been looked at is the biggest aspect and the best cheerleaders that you have is your are your customers. Some of the world's best companies that grow grow purely on word of mouth. They grow from just customers being so happy with the product that they're so excited about it. I'll just give a simple example. When Netflix started, I think they were getting two new users for every one person that they were adding. And that's kind of, they were the first creators of a a freemium model because they created the first month free and they were the pioneers in it. But because they knew that for every user we get, we get two new users. So even if we have churn, we'll have a lot of people who would come expand expand through it. So, um, and also I was just reading this study about how it's hard, it's 25 times more expensive to um, add a new customer than to keep one. And almost 16 times new expensive to add a new customer by completely cold outbound process versus getting a referral from another customer. So I think those are some of the engines that we haven't looked at or optimized or tried to over-optimize is understanding what could what could be due to reduce churn, increase expansions, and just increase, increase lifetime value of a customer by understanding their data, 
really visualizing, spending time on it, um, and utilizing customer success, customer service, and post-sales to be the revenue leaders and revenue generating functions, training them, really training them on how to be good closers because they're naturally so good at empathy and they have such great relations with customers. Can they become your best closers as well? I think there's a lot of work that can be done there and focusing on customer dollar, net dollar retention to become the next growth engine is something something that I'm really bullish about. I love that. I love that perspective. What are some of the things that you, you know, as you look back that you wish you maybe knew earlier or maybe would have done differently if you, if you could go back and do it all over again? That's a, that's a, that's a really good um, thing, uh, Rosalind. I, I think about that a lot. Um, and recently I've been, um, I think one of the things that, you know, as, as people, uh, irrespective of revenue leaders are not, we always have regrets of the past um, and we have worry for the future, <laughs> right? Like we always right. think about the past and have something about, hey, we could have done this better. We could have done this differently. And looking in the future, we always think about, oh no, what can happen with the future? One of the things that, that I've been um, really focusing on doing is mistakes that we made in the past, um, mm -hmm. but not being not being harsh on ourselves, but just saying that, okay, we won't make these mistakes again. Um, mm -hmm. So fundamentally, I would say as a leader, one of the things that I have, um, have made mistakes in the past is hiring the wrong fit people who are not mm -hmm. good culture fits for the company. I think that's something that I've had deep regrets for because we've let them down, we've let ourselves down, we've let our team down doing that. So um, one of the things that we have done now now do is really figure out people who could be great culture fits and stage fits and just find passionate people who uh, may fit into a role irrespective of the experience, have the drive, motivation, can fit the culture of the team and give them the opportunity to lead and give them the opportunity to showcase their talents. Um, I think that's one of the mistakes that I have personally made in the past as leader. As a leader um, is, is either trying to be attracted by, uh, you know, been there, done that, or being mm -hmm. attracted by all the wrong reasons. And, and it's, and that's something that I feel is, is a, is a mistake that I made that I could have done better, but moving forward, we're trying to, trying to focus on it. Um, the, the second I would say is, I think I'm, I'm a big believer in remote work as, <laughs> as much as, you know, we all talk about hybrid work or, uh, you know, staying at home long time ago, we had this opportunity. We were, we were running out of money for our first company. And it, it, it feels like it's like every company we're close to running out of money at some point. So for our first company, we were running out of money and our office space was very expensive. It was about $8,000 a month because we were young, mm. we were stupid. We had the best equipment, the best <laughs> furniture. We had the, the best laptops and machines for everybody. And, and that was expensive. And, and I remember that we were doing cash flow analysis at one point. And my finance director of finance said, look, we can just go and work remotely. It's everyone was almost engineers anyways at that time. And I was just so bullish about being in the office and camaraderie and we have to be next to each other. Um, and I feel like, you know, we, we lost our <laughs> runway. We had to sell because, <laughs> because we didn't have, if we, if we kept going, we would have run out of money. So I feel I wasn't a huge believer of remote work to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. And and that's something I could have changed early on. But I, we are 100% remote now, and it's and 
collaborating and being productive just fine. That's great. That's great advice. I love that. That's great. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. Um, but as we kind of wrap up and before I let you go, I always ask guests kind of two things. One, what is the one thing about you that others would be really surprised to learn? Um, and two, what is the one thing that you really want everyone to know about you? I think one thing that people would be very surprised to learn about me is I'm very late on trends. I'm very <laughs> behind on all the latest trends. <laughs> so uh, this is something very funny. Uh, my team always makes fun of me because I'm the last person to do anything that's trendy, even though I'm a technology entrepreneur. So I'm, as an example, I am not on TikTok. I don't have an Instagram account yet. I don't, so I'm late on I was late on crypto and and even though I'm on top of these trends, I some something in me always wants me to um, uh, you know prove have others prove it out before before I jump on it. <laughs> and this is something people are very surprised by. Um, and and they don't know about me. But when they do, they make fun of me, especially my team. Um, and and I, I think the the second thing I would talk about, and I think we touched on this, Rosalind. Um, and this is something that I learned very recently is um, everybody feels imposter syndrome and every all my team members and my investors, our customers always feel because of my optimism that every day I, I am crushing it or feeling very <laughs> good and feeling excited. And I think I think this is something that uh, people are surprised to know. But about me is is. Um, I get I have a lot of imposter syndrome that I work towards and and have been working on for decades now and I feel everyone does in some way shape or form everyone has imposter syndrome um, and just acknowledging that and being at peace with it and understanding what you're feeling at certain points is so important and that's something that I always you know like to like people to know that. I feel the same way a lot of times, you know, before a difficult customer call, before this podcast, as an example, I feel nervous and, and all those things still carry. And the optimism is just a bravado that, you know, I put together <laughs> or that I have as for being a great CEO. Oh, well, you are doing a fantastic job. I think you are incredibly amazing and just inspirational. And I don't think, I thank you for sharing that because I don't think anyone would have guessed that. <laughs> about you. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you again. And I'm just so incredibly grateful uh, for your time and for sharing your story and just all of the great insights. So thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Rosalind. I'm so proud of you and the, and the podcast and the listeners. So thank excited you. for this and grateful for having me. Thank you so much.